Thank you, singers, who sometimes don't even know what we're going to sing till they come up on stage. Because we need someone to pick the songs out. <laughs> yep, that's how we roll. Okay. Um, hey, I'm going to put the, the mic on so the, the recording is understandable. Uh, we're going to continue our series called The Villain. We started this last week. If you missed it, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, this is where we are reading the Bible and ignoring the hero. What do you mean by ignoring the hero? I mean, when we, when we read the Bible and we only pay attention to the hero, we miss the lessons of the villain. And I think that the lessons of the villain are for us. And so, here's what we, we looked at last week. Here's the Bible, and here is um, the questions. Do I recognize any part of my character in this guy, this, or girl, this person we're looking at? Do I see myself in them, and do I see them in me? And then asking the follow-up question, which is, uh, what, what lessons could God want me to learn from this? And... Uh, Last week we looked at Joseph's brothers, and we looked at Pharaoh. And the, the takeaways, I won't go over that again, but I would just say, there are lessons that we learned from Joseph's brothers that we don't learn from Joseph. Okay? There are lessons that we learned from Pharaoh that we don't learn from Moses. And so today, we are going to go, we're going to only look at one guy today. And this one dude we could spend the next month on. Uh, but we're just going to do this one lesson on King Saul. We read in 1 Samuel about how Saul becomes king and then David, uh, David and Goliath. You know these stories. These are classic, like, veggie tales stories. They're classic Sunday school stories. They go to church long enough, you're going to hear about David. But I want to in a sense, ignore David for this morning and only look at Saul. And I want us to imagine, is there part of me in Saul? Is there part of Saul in me? And if you remember, last week we did that, the hero spectrum. From, from hero to villain, from David to Saul, from Moses to Pharaoh, like where do we fall on that spectrum? And we always want to put ourselves by the hero. Like, I'm way more like the hero than the villain. But maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should actually recognize and be humble enough to say, I'm actually a lot more like the villain. And we're going to explore that. So today we're looking at Saul. I have what might be the longest point title ever. And I thought about breaking it up into two, but then I said, I, I do what I want. I'm going I'm to make this the longest point title in the world. And it's probably not. I'm sure someone has made it one longer. But the title of my first point is The Right Thing's the Wrong Way and The Wrong Thing's the Right Way. It is long. <laughs> Write that down. The Right Thing's the Wrong Way and The Wrong Thing's the Right Way. Saul starts the, his like, story as king. So he's anointed king over Israel and 
he starts with these two stories we're going to look at, which are confusing. They're strange stories, okay? I'm just going to warn you. They are weird stories that we're going to look at. But he starts kind of his reign, and he's, he's um, going off to war and fighting other nations. And, and these two stories are perfect examples of this. And the first one is the sacrifice, okay? In 1 Samuel 13, let's read what happens. He's a, he's a war, and he, uh, Samuel, who is the prophet, says, hey, wait for me before you do anything. So this is Saul. He remained at Gilgal, and all the troops were with him, were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So Saul is the king, Samuel is the prophet, and the king and the prophet had a, had a very important relationship in the Old Testament. The king was not supposed to do things that the prophet or the priest was supposed to do, and the prophet didn't do the things the king was supposed to do. And so Samuel said, wait for me, and Saul waited, but then the prophet still wasn't there, and then this is what happens. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now this is an example. This is a very strange passage because if you're like me, I read this and I'm like, that doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. And Samuel comes and is like, how dare you? You're not going to be king anymore. And he, but he was trying to do the right thing. And I believe Saul was trying to do the right thing. Offering the sacrifice to the Lord to seek his favor in an upcoming battle or figure out what God wanted him to do is the right thing. He just did it the wrong way. Saul didn't wait for the prophet. He decided to take things into his own hands and do things his way himself. And so he did the right thing the wrong way, okay? So that's like sub point one of point one, if you're keeping track, okay? <laughs> sub point two is the curse. And this is the wrong thing done the right way. This is also a very weird story, okay? So this is a different time, different battle. But Saul and his men are out, they're fighting, and Saul decides to say something that he probably shouldn't say. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul, 1 Samuel 14, 24, uh, because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Now this is something that if you read the Bible, 
the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, this is the thing that some people would do. Like, I swear I won't eat until this happens. And it, there's a story in the New Testament where some Pharisees decide to do that. Like, I'm not, we're not going to eat until Saul, until Paul, Saul, Paul dies, and then Saul escapes. And I always wondered, like, well, at some point they were like, okay, guys, we should eat because we're going to starve to death. He's gone. But this is a thing that would happen. They're like, hey, until we uh, accomplish our objective, no one's going to eat anything. And the problem was, so none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. And I, it says oath twice in there, but then what, what, what Saul actually says is a curse. Curse be to anyone who eats food before evening comes. So he kind of put this curse over all of his men, made them take an oath. You're not going to eat until we avenge. Uh, and, and all the guys took it very seriously, okay? But what happens? But Jonathan, Saul's son, had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Which means he, you know, he got energy. He was like, oh, this is good. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. And so the whole army is like woozy. Jonathan didn't know what his dad said, and he's like, Look, guys, honey, this is delicious. This will give us energy. Give a little sugar rush. And everyone's like, We can't do that. Your dad said, if, You know, anyone who eats has to die today. And I don't think I put it in here, but Jonathan says, well, that, is, that was dumb. He should not have said that. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't put that in there. So then later, but Jonathan is like, look, it, it did me good. Why did, why did he say that? He shouldn't have said that. But then later, it comes out. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me. Be it ever so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. And so Saul was like, he, he did what he thought he should do. Like this big, bold, emotional thing. Like, hey guys, and pseudo-spiritual. Like, hey guys, God's going to give us a victory and we're going to fast. But he didn't say we're going to fast. It wasn't optional. He was like, if you, if you eat, you're going to die. And then his son died. His son was actually a great warrior. And all the men were like, hey, nope. If you, if you kill him, bad stuff is going to happen. It was like Saul realized, oh, I might have a mutiny on my hands and killing my son. Guys, I hope I don't have to say this. Killing your son is the wrong thing to do. Okay. But he set up this thing where it kind of appeared like the right thing to do. He was about to do the wrong thing in the right way, if that makes sense. He constructed this pseudo-spiritual oath-slash-curse on his men, and he got trapped in his own line of thinking. Now, what does that have to do? What? We're never going to be in any one of those situations... So what are the lessons that we could get from that? I want to take a step back. The right thing the wrong way, the wrong thing the right way. The, the lesson that we see, the, the character trait that we see in Saul 
is, and he gets punished for this, is that he just decides that he's going to do whatever he feels is right. Saul keeps doing whatever he thinks is best. He makes... Now, if I were to say this sentence about anyone, anyone. Okay, ready? He makes his decisions on his own about what's best for him. In our American mindset, we're like, of course, that's what everyone should do. But Saul, he makes his decisions on his own about what's best for him. And while it sounds fine to us, because we are individualistic, it's the thing that brought Saul down as a king. And I would say that this shows the the, the power of having trusted advisors in your life. Paul had a trusted advisor. He had Samuel, but he rejected him. He pushed him away. He didn't really take what he said seriously. You might think that this is not a big deal. And all I can say is, if, if, I mean, if you, if you paid attention to what I've been saying the past, the past two years, to me, this is a big deal. That Christianity and the kingdom of God is, much, is supposed to much more resemble a, an ancient Eastern collectivist culture. And we hate that. And so we reject it. And we're like, no. And, and I, I feel like we've broken Christianity to a degree. Because we've decided we can take that thing and we can do it, but do it our way however we want to do it. Saul is actually the, the, the poster child. He's the lesson of why it is a big deal. If we, reject, if we reject the people that God has put in our lives, if we decide we're just going to do things our own way, he doesn't have people around him and his choices and decisions get more and more serious. They get more and more grave. And it actually... Costs him his entire family. And so, Saul is now, he's trying to be king, even though Samuel said, hey, you're not going to be king for very long. And now he's in this very hard transition period where he's been told by the prophet, God isn't on your side anymore. But he still lives in the palace and people still do what he says and he still has the power. And so now he's like, kind of walking on eggshells a little. He's like, man, how's it going to go down? And at one point, Samuel basically withdraws fellowship from Saul. He's like, I'm not going to see you anymore. And we move in to the next phase of Saul's life. So first came the, the very individualistic, I do what I want phase, even when it seemed pseudo-spiritual. And then we move into the jealousy phase. This is where God has told Saul through the, the prophet, you're not going to be in charge for very long. And, and now, he's got, now he's looking over his shoulder. Well, how's that going to come about? And if, if you were like other kingdoms, it usually came about by someone assassinating you. That's how transitions of power happened in the world. 
Someone, either a foreign army came and wiped you out, or someone within your nation assassinated you, murdered you. There was a coup or an overthrow. And so you're always, people had, that had any sort of power or control were always looking over their shoulder, like, how's it going to come for me? When, when is it going to happen? <sighs> Jealousy is a strange word, but that's what I'm sticking to, okay? Here's a, here's a definition of jealousy. Jealousy is a complex emotion that encompasses feelings ranging from suspicion to rage to fear to humiliation. It strikes people of all ages, all genders, and is most typically aroused when a person perceives a threat to a valued relationship from a third party. The threat may be real or imagined. And yet, so what, what, what Saul was feeling was, I have a relationship right now with my power, with my control, with my kingdom, and someone, some third party, is going to come and take it from me. And we see that in David. And so you know the story of David and Goliath. Saul is back, and David is this kid, and he goes out and slays the giant, and then everyone's like, David's the man. And and Saul's like, oh, is this the guy? He can't think of any other way it's going to go down other than I'm going to end up, like, murdered. But let's read. So, so he pulls David in, and he starts to go a little crazy. His, his rage, his jealousy, his, his fight for control starts to take over. And there's several times where he tries to kill David just outright. Like, he's like, hey, David played the, 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 the harp, the lyre. And he'd be like, David, come play for me. And then while he's playing, he just grabs a spear and he's just like, ugh, like, I hope I pin him to the wall. And David's like, oh, and runs away. <laughs> David could juke a spear pretty quick. He was like, he, he dodged this several times. But he ends up making David like a, a general or a commander in his army. And, and let's read a story here. In 1 Samuel 18, it says, Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. Now, time out. Why did Saul do this? Because Saul was hoping they would die in battle. Saul was like, hey, why don't you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in charge of a thousand guys and I'm going to send you out and fight. Go fight over there. They come back and they're like, hey, we won. He's like, okay, go fight over there. He's like, comes back and like, hey, we won. He's like, okay, go fight over there. He keeps sending them out into battles hoping that they die. Or at least just David. But in everything he did, he had great success. Because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And so you see this jealousy, this fear, which fear is a weird word. It's very clear in the Bible. It says Saul was afraid of David. But sometimes when you're feeling that, you don't put fear to that feeling. You should, but sometimes we don't label it fear. But Saul says... um, hey, I'm going to send you out. And there's another story of where David comes back from a battle and everyone is singing praises to David. And they start this chant. I think we've looked at it in a past sermon where it says, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And it just makes Saul so angry. 
And so Saul is holding on to his power. He's holding on to his control of his kingdom. And David is like, keeps getting more and more and more popular. And the fact that if you're a king chilling at home while you send people away hoping they'll die, but they come back, who, you only look worse and worse and worse every time they come back. Here's another, a little bit later. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. At, at one point, Saul is like, hey, enough with the charades. David is enemy number one. Just murder this kid. Please, find him and just wipe him out. But they liked him. And Jonathan loved him. He was like his best friend in the whole world. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. Now, if you read all of 1 Samuel, read the story. It can be kind of confusing and it's even kind of tricky to lay out the timeline because it looks like David is like, Saul wants to kill him. And he runs away, and then the next thing you know, he's back. And he's like, hey, are we cool? And Saul's like, yeah, we're totally cool. And throws a spear at him again. And David's like, runs away. And then, then a little while later, he's back. He's like, hey, are we okay? Saul's like, yeah, 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 we're fine. You're my son-in-law now because they married his daughter and all this stuff. And then he tries to kill him. And it, over and over and over, Saul wants David dead. David spent the next few years, several years, hiding from Saul. He would go to other tribes, go to other countries. He would go hide in caves. He would just do whatever he could to to avoid Saul's murderous threats. But again, this isn't a lesson about David. This is a lesson about Saul. So what's going on in Saul's heart that is causing him to do all of this horrible, wicked, evil stuff. Well, on on the surface level, Saul could not give up control. And I I wrestled with how to say this best, but, but this is what I think. Like, Saul knew early on. Like, Samuel told him very plainly, hey, God isn't with you anymore. Someone else is going to take over your kingdom. And so from that point on, Saul's like wrestling with giving up his control. And he couldn't do it. He, he struggled mightily to, to figure out what is this going to look like. I want to I rephrase this a little bit. And I really want to bring this, because you might be like, well, I'm not a king. I have no power. I have, sometimes it feels like I have no control. Um, but here's, here's another way I want to word this. Saul sacrificed relationships on the altar of control. Saul had two things. He had his his power, his kingdom, his role, his position. His identity was wrapped up in this idea of being a king. Everything is me. I'm, I'm the king and I have control over this thing. I don't know what it's going to look like outside of that. I, I, I can't imagine my life going well outside of that. And so to preserve that thing, everyone else, I'll kill him. I, will, I have a great relationship with David. He's a great general. Everybody loves him. He's my son-in-law. I like the guy, but I don't like him enough to give up my control. So, so I will always sacrifice the, the man for the power. Does that make sense? Here's another way to, to say this. 
My ability to determine the course of my life is more important than the people in my life. And when you're not in a good space, that feels true until you actually get your way and everything crumbles. Life comes crashing down because your life wasn't never about your ability to control situations. Life is all about the people in our lives. I would surrender every ounce of control I have in my life to preserve Jen and the boys. I would give up every ounce of control in my life to preserve you guys and my friends. Because I know that the people are so much more important than the status or position or whatever I, whatever I think I'm holding on to in life. Saul, if you think about it, David loved Saul. If you keep reading, David's love for Saul is unparalleled. He never speaks ill about the man that's trying to kill him. He mourns. He has the opportunity to kill Saul, and he's like, I would never, I would never hurt the king, even though he's already been told that he's the new king. And he, he actually gets in, into some trouble. Later, Saul dies, and David weeps bitterly for him. The Lord's anointed. And all the guys, they're like, we were fighting him. Like, why are you upset? David loved Saul so much, and yet Saul could not even imagine a scenario where the transition of power goes well. And so he kept acting out. Saul could have died an old man in the palace as a trusted sage and advisor to the king. He could have been set up in a beautiful mansion on the hills and enjoyed David's affection and love for the rest of his life. And yet he couldn't, he couldn't imagine that, and so he just fought. His family paid a terrible price for his pride and his aggression and his jealousy and his violence. And so when I boil down, when I boil down Saul's character traits, this is, what I, this is kind of what I come to. Individualist, he's jealous, he's controlling, he's violent, and he's angry. Here is the wicked villain, King Saul. And yet, if I'm being honest, this is me. This is us. And you, you might be really calm and gentle and peaceful, and you'd be like, I am none of those things. I would just encourage you to really dig and sort of explore the nuanced corners of your heart where these things are there. Maybe you don't look like him. Maybe you do look like this, overtly. Like, you read this and you're like, gulp, that's me. <laughs> and that's like a slap in the face. Well, that's me too. All of these things are in my heart. And you might be like, well, Ben, I've never seen you act like any of these things. Well, I might come back to that. But maybe you think you don't have any of these. But again, I would challenge all of us, every single person in this room, if, if you haven't explored your level of individualism yet, 
uh, it's, it's a big deal, guys. It's a big deal to me. When was the last time you waited to make a decision until you surrounded yourself with trusted spiritual advisors? Like, I don't know, never. Because you're an individualist. That's how we operate. What about jealousy? Has anyone ever looked at social media and seen someone else's live? And then, I don't care on what spec, on, on how severe I'm talking about. I'm just, I just, negative thoughts of any kind pop into your head about something you see. Either about the stuff they have or their position or their, their, their lives. Have you ever had negative thoughts about them and their stuff or you and your stuff? It's because this lives in you. What about controlling? Here's a way to think about our controlling parts of our character. When God says, hey, I'm going to take this thing from your life. Or I'm going to make your life very hard right now. Are you always fully surrendered? No, we're not surrendered. We're upset and we're angry and we fight back at God and we fight back at people because we like control over our lives. Now, our control may not have any influence over people. We're not the king. We can't make people do what we say. But that doesn't mean that we're not controlling inside. That we don't value the ability to run our lives the way we want. And then violent and angry. You might think you don't have this. But have you ever been in an argument? Have you ever had a conversation that's starting to get a little heated and then you start to feel something and your heart is like, <laughs> it's a little, it's quick in it and it's like, and my breathing is picking up. My muscles are, are tensing. Guys, I'm the minister and I was in a conversation where I, I, I thought, I was like, I need to take a step back. Wow, what is going on here? I want to punch this guy right now. The question isn't, you're not violent or angry because you beat people up. You're violent and angry because there's something inside of you that will sacrifice people and for, for, for whatever you think is, go, is the most important. Here's another way to say this. Uh, has someone ever been hurt by you? If the answer is yes, I have, I have hurt people. If the answer is yes, then we need to understand what's going on inside us. There's some violence and there's some anger in our hearts. And so, I'm, I'm going to be honest, back in the day, Jen and I were dating as like teens and 20s, and we were, gosh, I should wrap it up because we're over time. But, like, we were a mess. Joetta, Jen's mom is here, and she can tell you Ben was a mess. Uh, I remember, I did not, I, I didn't, when I wrote this, I wasn't actually thinking Joetta was going to be sitting right here. <laughs> but I'm glad she is. Uh, guys, I remember the jealousy of thinking that I had to control Jen. And I didn't trust her. I remember, like, there was a time where we lived together, before we were Christians, and, and, and I was, 
like, I didn't trust what she said. And I remember being at home, going crazy, and she was at work. And I was like, you know what? What is she going to do after work? Is she going to come home? I don't know if she's going to come home. So I would drive and sit outside her work. And I remember this happening at least a couple times. Where, and then I would follow her home. And then we'd pull into the parking lot at the same time. And she'd be like, oh, what are you doing? And then I would lie and say, oh, I just went into the store. We got here at the same time. The jealousy and the, the blind idiocy that I, I, was, I was embracing. And we would go to parties. And we would always fight. We'd get into a fight at parties. Like every holiday party. For years we did this. Our friends were sick of it. And I remember like thinking, we went to a Halloween party one time, and I remember thinking, what costume am I going to wear that I won't feel like an idiot when I'm yelling at Jenin? I'm planning my wardrobe around the jealousy, anger, and violence. If I'm wearing, if I'm wearing the like teddy bear thing, that's going to be dumb. She's not going to take a teddy bear seriously. I'm going to wear the Viking hat or whatever. And I would love to say that I figured it all out. And now I'm a better person. But the, the, the truth is, guys, I'm not. And every single thing on that list still lives in my heart. And every day, it is a choice to make Jesus Lord of my life and not live that way. And so, I'm going to wrap this up. We're actually going to take communion. This is a sermonium. So, this is Saul and David. And we read about Saul and David. David is the lowly, humble shepherd boy. He's the hero. Saul is the prideful, arrogant, villainous king. He's the villain. We read, it, we read it and we're like, we're obviously more like David. We align ourselves with David than with the king. But when we do that, those lessons that we learn, David doesn't teach us those lessons Yet, David, he becomes king, and guess what? He basically becomes Saul. Now, he's a little more humble than Saul. He keeps his people a little bit closer. He keeps his heart a little purer. But he does almost all the things that Saul did. But if we, if we say, I'm not like Saul, we miss the lessons of the villain. We miss the dangers of individualism and pride. But here's what I want to say. David is not the opposite of Saul. David becomes just like Saul did in his, when he becomes into power. The opposite of Saul is Jesus. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read a scripture, New Testament scripture, to, to take us into communion. But I want you to, to read the scripture, which is about Jesus and about people who follow Jesus. And I want you to contrast that, what I'm describing, with everything we just read about Saul. Okay? And so, I'm going to read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It's kind of a longer scripture. But I want you to think, man, Jesus is the opposite of Saul. I am so much like Saul. On the spectrum of Jesus to Saul, you are Saul. Okay? But how can we push away against all the things that are in us that are like Saul and try to be more like Jesus. So here's Philippians 2, 1 through 11. 
This is the New Living Translation. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts, your, not individual, are your hearts as a family tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Do not be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The picture that that Paul is painting in Philippians about Jesus and the community and the family of Jesus is so the opposite of Paul. And it's not that we grow out of our Paul phase. It's that we make Jesus Lord every day and choose to live like he tells us what to do, not, I mean Saul, sorry, not Saul. I just have a, a practical. I'm going way too long and I apologize. I have a practical for us. I'm going to go back to individualism. Having people in your life who you trust and love and, and you can talk to, and having people that you can be honest with, all the, the dumb stuff, all the, all the bad stuff, all the ways that you're like Saul, having people that you can be like, this is in me, I need help. It's one of the most important things that we can do as Christians. God, God never imagined us to have this personal relationship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's nowhere in the Bible where it's just me and him. And I don't have to be part of a family. And so when I push away from people, that is when I see I'm like Saul. I'm doing the things Saul did. I'm sacrificing people at the altar of my control and power. But when, when I go towards people, and when I go towards those relationships, I see, oh, then my life starts to bear the fruit of, of being like Jesus. And so, I would just say, practically, we have to invest in each other. Time. You need time with people. 
openness. You need to be willing to just say, this is who I am. This is, this is me. And let them minister to you in that way. And then finally, we need to see that we'll never be like Jesus if, we, if we're willing to fight and hold on and, and, and sacrifice people. And we let our pride take over. And so, those are the lessons of King Saul. He was, uh, he was a great king. He was definitely used by God. But we look back and we're like, it's a shame. His life didn't really amount to much at all. And I want us to be more like Jesus. Amen? So guys, I'm going to pray and we are going to take communion.